Good morning. The reading for today is from 1 Samuel 13, verses 8 through 14. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Mackenzie. Great work. She had to read Micmash, and she didn't stumble it over once. It's pretty good. We didn't make it easy for her today. Good morning and welcome. My, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm one of the team of four pastors here, along with our staff who serve this community. And uh, we, we love doing that. If you're new here, especially want to welcome you. Um, I know it can be hard to jump or kind of weird to jump into a new church community and kind of learn what we're all about. But as soon as you're ready, we would love to meet you and take you out for coffee, get to know you, something like that. But you should know if you're new, we really love God's word here. We really do. Uh, we seek to live by it. We think that it's full of uh, truth for us and that every story ultimately points to Jesus and our need of him. I also was thinking about you people who are not new here. I was thinking about you this week and praying for you. Um, I just was overwhelmed with thankfulness in anticipation of this moment, sitting here and getting to look out on you all who have made it a priority to be here, to take time out of your week, to worship with us, to learn from God's word. I'm just encouraged and humbled by that. Um, Pastor Frank has been out last Sunday. He's out this week, if you couldn't tell already. And so he misses us, I think, and he sent us a video snapshot of what camp has been like for him. So let's watch that now. for what camp life is like. Now you know. Um, but I think, I think he misses us. So pray for him uh, if you think of it this week. Now what I'd like to do before we dive into our text is to give you a quick recap of our series so far because you're coming in right in the middle of a series we're doing. Um, this is week four of a series that we're calling We Want a King, which is what the people cry out in 1 Samuel chapter 8 because they want to be like the other nations. Yet when we reject God as our king, it always leads to disaster. And we're going to see some of that this week. This series centers on the rise and fall of Israel's first three kings. Saul, we're on week four of five studying Saul. And then we're going to look at King David and then King Solomon. In this, we're exploring themes of power and brokenness, national division and personal failure, uh, exploring, uh, cultivating a heart after God. And ultimately, uh, we, we hope that you'll see that all three of these kings point to our need as, for Jesus as king. So the people demand a king. They choose Saul, this guy who had everything you'd want in a king. He looked good. He was strong. He was a good military leader. We learned that last week. He led the people through a military victory. And everything was peachy keen for the people of Israel. But we're going to see today that outward appearance, although not unimportant, 
God is not concerned about outward appearance as much as a person's inner motives, their inner character, and yes, their actions, their outward appearance. That those are what concern God most. Those are what mark a good leader. Now, last week we saw the Spirit of God work through Saul to deliver the people of Jabesh Gilead. Even though they had rejected God as king, he mercifully provides as king for the people. The result of that was it secured Saul's leadership and it united the people of Israel together in a way that hadn't been seen for a long time. Now, chapter 12, which we're just skipping right over today. We're not looking at chapter 12 because it has more to do with Samuel. But you might see in your Bible it's titled Samuel's Farewell Address. And in that, he gives the people stern warning to follow after God. Here's how he summarizes his own words in 1 Samuel 12, 24. And 25, he says this to the people, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's the summary of what Samuel's final words were. Now this week, we're looking at chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel. We've got a lot of text to cover. And so I'm going to summarize parts. I'm going to read parts. But I hope you're just... Bible open, ready to engage with me, and, and we'll get through it. We'll dig through God's word together. Would you pray with me first? God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that right now, in this moment, Holy Spirit, you would begin working in us. Show us our need uh, more deeply for Jesus as king. And God, we pray that you would reign in our hearts. Like we sang, that the altar of our life would bring you praise. God, be enthroned on the altar of our lives. We need your spirit to discern and apply your word, so we pray that you would provide for us in that, God. And anything up here that's said that's not from you, may it be forgotten. Anything that's from you, God, may it be taken in, wrestled with, God, applied to our lives. Make us more like you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Remember, I come from kids' ministry. I got to do that once in a while. Let's dive into 1 Samuel 13. Starting verse 1, we'll read 1 through 7. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Quick timeline note. It's not that Saul was a one-year-old infant and then became king. It might seem like that, but what most people think is happening is, remember there's a delay between when he was anointed king in chapter 10 and when he was appointed king at the end of chapter 11. Most people think what's happening here is that's that one-year gap. After that, he reigned two years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men. Let's carry on. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. So here's our introduction of Jonathan. There is much, much more we're going to learn about Jonathan. But what you need to know for now is he is Saul's son apparently of an age enough to lead a military group of a thousand. The rest of the people Saul sent home, every man to his tent. So he keeps 3,000. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel, and all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Kind of interesting there. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, you could say that, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves. They just ran away. They ran away in caves, in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan River to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So, verse 3 and 4, kind of interesting. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, but verse 4 tells us that all the people heard that Saul did that. 
an interesting reversal of, ver- of chapter 11 where God saves Israel and Saul says, yes, God did that work. Now Jonathan defeated and Saul is saying, I defeated. So to set the scene here, we have 3,000 of Israel's best. I think Saul probably chose the best warriors of the group that remained after chapter 11. He said, I'm going to keep these 3,000. The rest of you can go. This is all I'll need. Okay. On the way, Jonathan defeated a, a smaller group of Philistines, and now Israel became a stench. All of the Philistines knew and were annoyed, and it just served to really make them angry. They gathered in force. Now, there is much debate on the exact number here. Okay, I've heard all kinds of stuff, but conservatively, you could say pretty confidently, conservatively, there were 30,000 Philistines encamped at Michmash. 30,000. I've heard as high as 60,000, but let's just say 30,000. Now, Michmash was about 12 miles away from Gilgal. That's how far apart these armies were. So you've got, conservatively, 30,000 versus 3,000. Not very good odds. Things aren't looking very good. You can see why in verse 6 and 7, the people, they book it. They get out of there. They run. They think we're, we're definitely goners. There's no way we're making it here which kind of makes sense, right? But the people of Israel are forgetting that God in chapter 11 just delivered them. God just delivered them, and they forget immediately. We forget the work of God so quickly, so quickly. God does this great thing. He rescues, he delivers, and we forget. We think he did it once, but surely he can't do it again. Yeah, God saved us in chapter 11 and Jabesh Gilead, but right here, clearly, it's, it's 30,000 versus 3,000. That, does, that doesn't work. This is part of why, as a staff, over the last few years, we have gotten better at reviewing after major events that we do. We, we plan them, we execute them, but we also take time to go, where was God in that? What happened that's worth celebrating? And you see this pattern in even the Old Testament elsewhere, these altars of remembrance, that as you pass by a place, you see that, and you go, oh yeah, that's where God did this great thing, to remember. We need those rhythms in our life, ways to remember how God moved. So Saul's army doubts, they scatter, they think it's going to be definitely better for us if we hide and wait it out, and the few that stayed behind were described, at least Saul stayed, but the few that stayed with him were described as trembling with fear. Life's not exactly like the movies, is it? I have this scene of of the movie 300 in my mind where you have these chiseled dudes who are just the baddest of the bad, these ones who remain with Saul and say, we're ready to die with you, Saul. We're here for you. But no, they're, they're trembling. They haven't run, but they're not exactly like the movies standing there ready for for anything. So we're going to read on in a minute in the story, but some helpful context to what we're about to read. I know I keep going back and forth between this and that, but here's some context that I think will help. In chapter 10, at the anointing scene of Saul, Samuel goes on to speak a word of prophecy over Saul's immediate future. And most think that right there in chapter 10, he's giving a specific instruction for this moment here in chapter 13. Let's read that together. It'll be up on the screen too. Chapter 10, verse 8. Here's Samuel talking to Saul. Then, Saul, go down before me to Gilgal. That's where Saul's army is now. And behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait, Saul, seven days, until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Saul is told, wait seven days in Gilgal. I'm going to arrive, we'll perform the sacrifices, and then we'll do battle against the Philistines. Meanwhile, keep in mind what's happening to Saul's army of 3,000. They're dwindling. They're running away. Okay, so now with that read, let's read 1 Samuel 13, 8 through the first part of 11. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. His army is scattering. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. 
As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Stop there. What have you done? You can just feel the fatherly, scary tone. What have you done? Back in chapter 10, at the anointing scene, Saul is uh, clearly, Samuel wants to do the sacrifice before the battle. And Saul here performs the priestly duties, seemingly just as Samuel arrives. You can kind of picture the scene. He's finishing the sacrifice, turns and looks, sees Samuel, goes, "Ah, hey, hey, man, really wish you'd have been here an hour ago. I really do. But Samuel seems to be operating in Arcadia time. And keep this in mind. For those people who are chronically a little bit late, okay, this this helps you. This helps you, okay? Ready? This is a great line next time you're running late. Just say, you can use this. I'm running on Samuel time. You can use that. It'll work. It's biblical. It'll work. Now, the peace offering and the burnt offering were a very important priestly duty in a pre-Christ Israel. The purpose was to purify the people from sin, to atone and sacrifice animals in thanksgiving to God. These are duties that Jesus fulfilled and nullified once and for all, and praise God for that. That's why we don't have an animal sacrifice area on our patio. We can sip coffee there instead. Much better. But importantly, this is to be done by an ordained priest of Yahweh only, and it was very serious, a very serious offense for anyone else to do it, even kings. Clearly, Samuel in chapter 10, like I said, they want to make sure that the people are good before God, before any military endeavor. We need to do whatever we can to secure God's aid in helping us before we do that. And Saul, I want to be clear, Saul seems to want that too. He wants the same thing. I don't just want to paint Saul in a negative light here. I also don't want to minimize that his choice was to act. Because we can kind of empathize with Saul. His decision seemed to make sense. And he decided not to wait any longer. Now you can imagine Samuel as he's walking up, finally arriving. He can see and smell the sacrifice taking place. And as he's walking up, he begins to go, that can't be what I think it is. Remarking to Saul, what have you done? So let's read uh, 13, 11 through 15. Here's how it plays out. Samuel said, what have you done Saul said, when I saw that the men, uh, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, he's having none of it. He says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then, and listen to this, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. The consequences for Saul's actions here are about as extreme as it gets. For a king to be told that your kingdom will not continue, your children will not continue in this line, it's done. You're done. I want to take a careful look And Cooper, we got a slide too for this. Saul's logic for performing these sacrifices. Because it's really important to understand what he says. One, he says, my army is scattering. This is Saul's logic. My army is scattering. The longer I wait, the less people I have to go and fight the Philistines. Second, Samuel is not here after seven-ish days. Now, what's happening here is that Samuel did arrive within the seventh day, but not the morning. So Saul technically obeyed. It's a seventh day, but Samuel 
Samuel was running on Samuel time. Three, Saul's thinking, saying, the Philistines, they're nearby. They could invade at any moment. It's urgent. I can't wait. Four, he says, my people are not atoned for. We need to do that. And therefore, he concludes, I must act now. Now, as you look at that list, you might look at that and go, well, that makes sense. That's logical. Saul is, is being a good king. This, is, this, this makes sense. But what's missing from that list is these two things. Saul saying, but God's got this. I can trust him. Everything looks bad. These are all reasons are all true. But God's got this. I can trust him. That's missing. The other thing that's missing, I must obey God. I must obey Samuel's word to wait. And Samuel, as a prophet, speaks on behalf of God. Saul's not saying, God's got this, I can trust him. He's not saying, I must obey God's word. Remember, Christian, that God's logic is not our own. His thoughts and ways are not ours. What's ours is to obey and trust and wait. It's God's to move and act and save. Saul's offense may seem trivial or minor to us. He just did the sacrifice. He wanted the same thing Samuel wanted. But here's the basic question at play is would the new king be subject to the prophet or would he overrule him? And here Saul proved he did not consider himself bound by God's instructions, which is dangerous for a king. Saul's actions after he scolded, after he scolded tells us everything we need to know about where his heart is at. Saul stays, Samuel leaves, and nowhere does it say, and Saul asked for forgiveness. And Saul repented. Saul returned back to God. That's missing from this. No, Saul carries on. He's preparing for battle. He carries on. One commentator says here that here begins a second battle for Saul, one that plays out over the rest of his life. Now, in addition to fighting the Philistines, he now has a battle in his own mind of how to get power back. What do I do now that I've been told that my kingdom is coming to an end? And this second battle marks the rest of his life, leading him towards what seems like insanity towards the end of his life, madness. And we can't miss here uh, in verse 14 a clear intro and foreshadowing of King David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. That's his famous description. Now, from the remainder of chapter 13 through the first 14 verses of chapter 14, we have this amazing story of, of Jonathan and his trust in God to deliver. Saul, on the other hand, as we summarize that section, is not told of Jonathan's plans until their effect begins to be seen. I just want to encourage you to go back and read this section. But Saul's army had dwindled from 3,000 now to 600. 600. Things are looking pretty bleak for Saul at this point and his army. He's hanging back in what the Bible calls a pomegranate cave. I don't know what that means. Probably there were pomegranate trees in there, but it sounds nice. I would visit pomegranate cave. And it's here at rock bottom for the people of Israel that we get an amazing story of Jonathan, Saul's son, and his armor bearer going up against an entire garrison of Philistines by themselves, which is crazy, but Jonathan trusted God despite the odds. And importantly, I think the lesson there is that God multiplied the faith of Jonathan, making it more than it was to spark this great victory for the people of Israel. Then the story gets really wild from there. There's this earthquake. Clearly God's getting involved here. There's an earthquake. The Philistines have no idea what's happening. They're terrified. In the chaos, they start fighting each other. And so the army is defeating itself. And where is Saul? Still in his pomegranate cave with his 600 men. Pretty clueless as to what's happening. Seemingly, we could be generous and say Saul's strategizing. How can I, how can I get 600 guys to defeat 30,000? Let me... If I can just move him here. Maybe he's strategizing. Maybe he's just waiting for it all to end. I'm just going to wait here, see what happens. This is, this is rock bottom. But he starts to catch wind of the chaos happening in the Philistine camp. And that's where our story kicks back in. Turn, if you would, 
to chapter 14, verse 20. We'll read there. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. And these great words, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Saul hears the commotion, comes and, and joins the battle eventually, and even, in the, even the guys who had went and hidden in the caves and across the river, they came back, they rejoined the battle. His army is a lot like the New England Patriots fans. That's right. You only hear from them when the team is doing really well, and they've been strangely quiet lately. They catch word that the Philistines are losing. They think, we might just make this. They come back. They come out in force. His army grows even to more than the 3,000 they started with because people on the Philistine army of Hebrew-Israelite origin, they switch sides. Again, kind of like New England Patriot fans. Notice how far Saul seems to be moving when he shouldn't. That what we've seen is, if of Saul is he's moving when he shouldn't, and he's still when he should be moving. He moves and sacrifices when he should wait for Samuel. He's still, while the Philistines surround them, he should be moving, figuring that out. He waits. What happens right before what we just read is he waits. He consults the priest because he sees the Philistines, something's going on there. He waits instead of jumping in. He eventually does, but he's kind of portrayed as blundering a little bit. He's impulsive, which we can relate to. We can sympathize with that. But are these the qualities you want in a king? Obviously not. No. And then we have those great words in 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. The New Bible Commentary sums up the battle like this. Nobody would have expected an Israelite victory here in view of all the difficulties described in the previous chapter. But two things change the situation dramatically. One, was Jonathan's courage and daring. I would add his trust in God. And the other was the will of God to give Israel victory. It was God that secured the victory for his people. And it was God that multiplied Jonathan's faith and courage. So Saul's army is chasing them now. They've got him on the run. They chase him, chasing them more than 10 miles at this point from where they started. And Saul does what any athlete or professional long-distance runner would recommend after some long and arduous physical activity is to not eat. That's good advice for any athlete. Stop eating. Saul, right here, makes an oath to God that, that he or any of his army are not to eat until sundown. So imagine, imagine that news being passed down to the army. We, we've been running 10 miles. We're battling. And don't eat? We're going to pass out. This, okay, I'm no military strategist, okay? I never claimed to be. But this doesn't seem like a good military approach. This seems a little rash, a little impulsive, a little unwise. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Jonathan, Saul's son, he is unaware of Saul's oath. That's an important part. He eats some food that he finds on the ground. And as he's eating, the army says to him, hey, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Saul, Saul said, do not eat. And Jonathan goes, well, that seems foolish because we're hungry and eating would help us, but, but okay. So Jonathan owns that, and now you can see Saul, he's in a pickle. He's kind of stuck. He's made that oath. Everyone knew about it except Jonathan, and now he's stuck. He needs to enforce the oath, which is punishable by death, by the way. That's why everyone's <laughs> definitely going to keep that oath. But Jonathan, his son, is the one trapped by his unwise leadership. His unwise, his rash decisions have now put him and Jonathan in a tough spot. Now, one quick note that we'll come back to. In verse 35 of 14, Saul builds his first altar. And it's described right there. It says Saul built his first 
altar. He did it publicly, which is important, but he did it to ask God whether or not to continue pursuing the Philistines. We've now chased them partly into their territory, should, and now he wants to say, God, should I keep going or should I stop and let him get away? What do I do? Sadly, there's this, it's heartbreaking, but God does not answer Saul at all. Just, just leaves him to figure it out. God refuses to answer Saul. And Saul assumes that maybe there's some hidden sin in the camp. He finds out that Jonathan might have eaten something. And that's where our story picks back up. 14 verse 43 this time. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him straight up, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Jonathan knows the consequence. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. When the people said to Saul, oh, wait, wait, hold up. Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. Isn't that interesting? So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up. He gave up pursuing the Philistines. And the Philistines went to their own place. Jonathan was ready to die. Ready to pay the price for an oath he was not aware of. And that was foolish. He was ready to pay the price. And Saul was going to do it. Saul was going to kill his son to follow through on a foolish oath. And isn't it interesting that the people turn on Saul here? They've had enough. They've seen his unwise decisions, his unwise leadership over and over, and they say, no, no, just stop, just stop. You're not doing that. God was with Jonathan. Jonathan worked with God to deliver us. We're, we're not hurting him. And so the Philistines get away. The people turn against Saul, and here we are. If we leave here only thinking of Saul's failures, then we've missed the way that scripture talks about him broadly, but this doesn't look good for him. The tone in chapter 14 shifts here, and it ends talking about Saul's other great military victories to be done from this point on. It talks about his wife, his kids. We shouldn't only think of Saul's failures, but his successes too, especially in particular when God uses him despite his failures. That's, that's kind of the point here. But Israel, to be clear, was victorious today because of God and God alone. Now, when Saul made that priestly sacrifice, and under Samuel's reproof, the spirit was removed from Saul, do you notice how he became increasingly outward, more religious? He, starts, he built his first altar then, publicly, when what was needed was a private act of repentance and worship God. But Saul already proved he did not have a heart after God. Saul wanted the benefits of God's favor. Think about this. But he didn't want God himself, seemingly. He had the looks. He had the charisma. He had the strength. But he was spiritually bankrupt. God doesn't look at those things. He looks at the heart. And Saul never seemed to get that. Now, church, I'm going to ask you a question that's been convicting me for weeks now. And I'm, to be clear, I'm saying this to myself also. Church, do we find God beautiful instead of just useful? This seems like a, a way you could word the primary issue with Saul. And one that's very relevant for us. Do we find God beautiful and not just useful? There are still, for now, in our culture, benefits to being seen as a Christian. Maybe your financial business gets that little edge by claiming Christianity. You can trust us. We're Christians. We're Christians. I got my first job at Baskin Robbins. Shout out to ice cream. Uh, I got my first job at Baskin Robbins because in the interview, my Nalgene water bottle, uh, this is embarrassing, it said, real men pray on it. 15 years old, totally real man. Um, but I got my first job because the, my interviewer saw that water bottle and said, you know, I like hiring Christians. They tend to work harder. I think that's good. We should be known as people that work harder and are trustworthy. That's good. 
right? But God is not a tool for our success. He is a beautiful friend, a loving guide, a present help. Using God for the benefits he brings while ignoring the friendship he offers, church, is a poor copy of the real thing. You want true wisdom? Jesus is the wisdom of God himself. You want victory over those unwanted behaviors? Jesus is the risen victory himself. You want joy in suffering? You want that real inner strength of character? You want to be trustworthy? Here's the secret. Ready? Taste and see that the Lord is good. What do I mean by that? It's experiencing the goodness of God that leaves you wanting more. And everything else gets like that, that Christian worship song. And the things of earth grow strangely dim. Why? Because I've tasted and seen that God is good and nothing else is as good. It's like a bean burrito at Los Taquitos. <laughs> you finish it and you go, oh, I could eat 10 more of those. I could eat 10 more. A, a taco from Torchy's. I, I could have 10 more of those, right? Seeing his beauty brings you uh, deeper into wanting more of that love, seeing more of him. The best possible path for our lives, church, is this, to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek after Jesus' righteousness, seeking to love him, follow him, obey him, and all these things that we want, all the good things that come with him will be added to us but they'll be put in their right place, in the right perspective. How do we do that? His word, it's our guide in life, but we read it not just because it's useful, not just because it's got really good snippets in there that you could cut out and put somewhere and, and look at it and go, ah, oh, isn't that a great quote? It's not just useful. God's word, it's, it's to show us more of the beauty of God and who he is. And when we read it, to be shaped by it over time. It takes time. Think about prayer, right? So how do, we, how do we practice friendship with Jesus through prayer? When was the last time you thought of prayer not just as an opportunity to ask for God, ask God for what you need? There's a lot of need in the world. People are sick. People are hurting. God, would you give me this? Would you bless this food? Would you do this for me? When was the last time you thought of prayer as practicing friendship with Jesus. And we do it together, lastly. We do it as one family. The Bible talks about the way we interact with one another as iron that sharpens iron. We sharpen one another. We point each other to Jesus as well. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this story of Saul and the good and the wise and unwise way that he led both of which point us to you, God. When he's at his best, you're glorified. When he's at his worst, you're glorified because you work through that. We thank you that you give us that same crazy benefit for us too. When we're at our best, it glorifies you. When we're at our worst, it glorifies you, God. Be glorified on the throne of our lives, on the altar of our lives, Lord. Spirit, would you remind us this week um, who you are, Jesus, would you give us a taste of who you are that we might grab that and, and want more and get caught into, man, sin is, is that much worse to us now and you are that much more beautiful, God. Forgive us for the ways that we've tried to use you for the benefits you bring while leaving you and your friendship behind, God. Forgive us. We love you. We're here because many of us in this room, we love you. But we love you because you first loved us. You are a good friend to us. You are a faithful, loving friend to us. You are beautiful, Lord. Thank you. We, we pray that, Spirit, this week, would you remind us to not simply bring our requests to you, but to praise you in our prayer, to practice communal friendship. You, you are always available to us. Thank you for that. We pray that in community this week, as we study together, as we eat together, fellowship, 
would you, by your spirit, give us words to say that might sharpen one another, that might point us to you, God, and a deeper reality of who you are? Make us more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. We respond every week as a church in these ways. We take communion together. If you're new, what we do is we come up the center aisle one row at a time. We grab communion. We go back to your seat down the side, and then you take it when you're ready. We also sing during this time. We sing out as practicing, enjoying the beauty of God, singing his praise. We give during this time. If you came prepared to give, you can do that at the giving boxes in the back. And we also pray during this time. I just want to encourage you to try this today. Maybe it's someone that you came with. Maybe it's someone you don't know. But I bet you, if you turn to the stranger next to you and said, can we pray? I bet they say yes. I bet that's an easy yes. So I just want to encourage you to consider trying that this morning. There will also be people up at the sides here ready to pray with you, to pray for you. Anything, big, small, we, we just believe that prayer is powerful. So let's respond in those ways now.
Amen, amen. Church, it was so great to worship with you this morning. It is what a just an honor it is to come and worship our beautiful Savior. And so as we go out into our weeks, I want to read this benediction over us out of the book of Jude. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Church, we love you. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.